0: Ezekiel chapter 10, I'm going to read to you the whole chapter, verses 1 through 22. And as I said at the beginning before we started our recording, we're not going to spend too too much time in it, because as you're going to see in just a second, most of what we're going to read here tonight has already been covered in previous parts of our study. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim, Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house, when the man went in. And a cloud filled the inner court, and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks." And when he commanded the man, clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels, from between the cherubim, he went in and stood beside a wheel, and a cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim. And he took some of it and put it into the hands of the man, clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. And and I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling beryl. And as for their appearance the four had the same likeness as if a wheel were within a wheel when they went they went in any of the four directions without turning as they went but in whatever direction the front wheel faced the others followed without turning as they went and their whole body their rims and their spokes and their wings and the wheels were full of eyes all around the wheels that the four of them had as for the wheels they called in my were called in my hearing the whirling wheels and every one had four faces the first face was the face of the cherub the second face was the human face, and the third face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Kebar Canal. And when, I, when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them, and when the wheels lifted up their wings, when the, sorry, when the wheels went beside them, and when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, these stood still, and when they mounted up, these mounted up with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in them. And the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance to the east gate of the house of the Lord and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Kebar Canal and I knew that they were the cherubim. Each had four faces and each four wings and underneath their wings the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the Kebar Canal. Each one of them went straight forward." Now not only are we going to skip over most of this because we've repeated it already in our previous parts of our study, and if you remember earlier in our study we would jump ahead to chapter 10 to show you some parallels between things that he saw in chapter 1 and so on. He even himself says over and over the same things, repeats it, repeats it, repeats it about the wheels. And he even says two or three times in this passage, these are the same cherubim that I saw in my first vision at the Kebar Canal when God called him to be his prophet when he was a captive there in Babylon. And so because most of this stuff, I've listed some of the few things that we've already covered, how the Spirit of God and the glory left the temple, we covered that last week and how the cherubim where the mode of transportation for God's glory, we've already dealt with that in our study. How the appearance of the cherubim with the four faces and their whirling wheels are all fully described here. We've already done that full study earlier in our study of Ezekiel. So because of all that, I just really don't think we're going to spend too much time in chapter 10 tonight, but there's one aspect of chapter 10 that I want to cover before we get to chapter 11, and that's the coals of fire that are at the base. If you remember from our study, when we've already looked at the cherubim, how at the base of each one, Uh, there were these coals of fire among the whirling wheels. And we even saw how back in Ezekiel 28, when God's talking about Satan and he said, you were a guardian cherub, you walked among the coals of fire. At the base of these cherubim, the four cherubim, are not only the wheels, but also the coals of fire that are there. And God tells the man clothed in linen, this is the same man who had been told to go throughout the city and mark the heads of all the people who grieved over the sin that was going on there, that same man now after at the end of chapter nine says, "I've done what you've told me to do." He then's now told to go over to the cherubim and take some of the coals of fire. And as we see from this passage, uh, one of the cherubim reached out with their wings and inside their wings with like a likeness of a human hand, and they scooped up some coals of fire and put it in the hands of the man clothed in linen and that individual was to then throw it out all over the city and to cast the coals of fire over Jerusalem. Now, interestingly enough, by the way, if you were to take uh, coals of fire like that and cast them over the whole city, what would happen to the city? It would burn. It would burn. Go, to, go to 2 Kings chapter 25. 2 Kings chapter 25, in 586 BC, at the very end of the, besie- uh, the siege of Jerusalem, as the scripture prophesied, we, we're going to see that actually the city of Jerusalem was burnt. 2 Kings 25, look at verses 1 through 9. It says, In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, but by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. And they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. In the 5th month on the 7th day of the month that was the 19th year of king Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. So just like the prophecy was saying in the judgment of Jerusalem because of their sin, they were going to scatter coals of fire it actually was burnt. Now, going back to the coals, though, I really want to do a study tonight, and just briefly, and you know that doesn't mean briefly, but just briefly, I'd like to do a study about the coals of fire. I want to look at the two aspects of these coals of fire, all right? First aspect is this, the fact that they're used, as we just referenced, as a judgment for destruction. But I'm also going to show us in a study tonight, the fact that the coals of fire also can be used as a judgment for purifying. i to say this to you again, and then I'll explain it. There's, they're going to be used as a judgment for destruction and also a judgment for purifying. You see, we see that these coals of fire are mainly being used for the destruction and judgment because of Israel's sin. But do you remember some of the people of the city had already been previously marked with a seal protecting them from destruction when the judgment came? You remember how he had been, the man clothed in linen had been told, go throughout the city, look for who was grieved, mark the heads of the, those people. They're going to be spared when the judgment comes. As you know, they were taken into captivity and they weren't killed during the destruction of Jerusalem. So some of the people of the city previously marked with a seal protecting from destruction when the judgment came, but these same coals would serve as a purifying purpose in their lives. And so that's what I want to take some time tonight is talk to you about the fact that when God brings judgment on a nation, that same judgment that is used for judgment and destruction of a nation because of their sin will also at the same time be used for a purifying purpose for those who are His. Okay, let me explain what I mean. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1, look at verses 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So here we see the coal. This time it's coal at the altar of incense there before the Lord. Here we see a coal taken, and it touches Isaiah's lips. In one instance, we see the coals used for destruction. In another instance, we see the coal used for purifying. What's the difference? Does anybody have any idea what the difference is between the fact that the the coal's being used for judgment or the coal's being used for purifying? Well, you know, we could say one's given by the seraphim, one's given by the cherubim. And even though that may be true, there definitely is a difference in our hierarchy. We don't know a whole lot more than that. But there's another reason. You got it. The heart of the individual and their response to the holiness of God will determine whether or not the coals are going to be used for purifying or whether or not they're going to be used for destruction. That's what we're going to do. You see, Isaiah is grieved over his sin, and the cold cleanses him. Now, let's be honest. A cold touching, a hot cold touching your lips, it couldn't have felt good. He didn't say, oh, that's soothing. I mean, let's be honest. The seraphim are using tongs to take it. He felt the heat of it, but it was used for purification. But it, The fire touched him, but it didn't destroy him. The people of Jerusalem who were grieved over the sin in the city and were marked with a seal. But the judgment of Jerusalem still touched them, didn't it? It still affected them. They didn't sit there and say, hey, everything's cool. We're good. It's all going to go on around us. It affected them as well. Their houses were burned. They were taken into captivity. But it was used for the purposes of purifying. Let's take Ezekiel, for example. Ezekiel obviously is a man who loves the Lord and fears God. He was taken into captivity in the second siege of Jerusalem along with 10,000 people. But it's during his time that he's in Babylon as a captive that he gets the vision of God there at the Kebar Canal and he becomes the prophet of God. Actually, the suffering that Ezekiel went through in the destruction of Jerusalem turned into what? Purifying and a growth time in the life of Ezekiel. We all deserve judgment. But God desires to give mercy. I'm going to say that to you again, and I want you to let this sink into your heads this morning and this evening in your hearts, because I want you to understand that we all deserve judgment, but God desires to give mercy. Go to Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, look at verses 9 through 13. It says as Jesus passed on from there he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax collector a tax booth and he said to him follow me and he rose and followed him and as Jesus reclined at a table in the house behold many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples and when the pharisees saw this they said to his disciples why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners but when he heard it he said those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. As he was, went to see Matthew, he said, hey, I'm going to eat at your house today. And so they went over to Matthew's house, and Matthew had friends that were tax collectors as well, and a lot of sinners were there, and they all were sitting there eating with Jesus. And the Pharisees' attitude was, what's he doing eating with those bad people? And Jesus says, I want you to keep in mind something. The physician is there to help the people that are sick, not the ones that are well. By the way, is there anyone that's well? No, there's no one righteous, not even one. But if the person doesn't think they're sick, the doctor can't help them. It's when the person's willing to acknowledge, okay, I need to see the doctor. That's when the doctor can help. And he said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Go back to Hosea chapter 6, because that's where he's quoting from. So let's go back and take a look at where Jesus is referring to. In Hosea, by the way, if some of you, Hosea is kind of a hard book to find. Just find Daniel. It's right next to Daniel. Go to Daniel and then turn one book to the right. In Hosea chapter 6, look at verse 6. God says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, ESV here has a little note next to it. Instead of steadfast love, it could be also translated mercy. God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You see, if we are righteous because of the sacrifices we make, who gets the glory? We do, because what we've done and the effort we've put in. But God says, actually, I want them to be the one who gets the whole glory. And yes, you're deserving of judgment, but I desire to give mercy. I desire to withhold the judgment. But whether or not the fire or the judgment of God destroys you or whether or not it purifies you, as Julie brought out, is all tied to your attitude and your attitude of repentance when it comes to your sin. An acknowledgment of the holiness of God and who you really are will determine whether or not the judgment of God is going to purify you or whether or not it's going to destroy you. And didn't Jesus himself say that he was the chief cornerstone? And whoever falls on it will be broken, but whoever it falls on will be crushed. Again, it's the attitude of how you respond to God. And I want you to see this. Go to Job chapter 42. Let me show you a few of the proper attitudes of responding to the holiness of God. Go to Job chapter 42. By the way, if you know anything about the book of Job, all throughout the book of Job, even though he starts off pretty good, through the middle of the book he starts saying that he doesn't think God's right and he doesn't think God's fair and what good does it do to argue with God because he won't even give him a chance to speak. And In chapter 42, at the end of God speaking to him for four chapters, Job says in verses 5 and 6, I have heard of you by the hearing of, my, of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Isn't this the same guy that's been saying throughout the whole book? I'm righteous. But upon seeing God, did he feel like he was righteous? No. And actually, even though God put him through a tough time, it was used for the purposes of purifying because his attitude of response was proper. Go to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, look at verse 8. As you're turning there, let me set the stage. Peter, as you know, is a fisherman. Jesus borrows his boat to preach from because Jesus, being the creator of the world, knows that actually you don't need a microphone if you're actually standing on a boat on a shore speaking out because the the sound actually carries across the the lake tremendously. If you've ever done it, you should try it. It's an amazing thing. My wife's parents own a house on a lake up in Gainesville area. And if you're out on the water, you can just call back to the house and the sound will just go right across that lake and they can hear it well. And Jesus borrows his boat, takes him out into the water a little bit and he stands there and he preaches and teaches to the masses. And when he's done, he turns to Peter and he says, Hey, tell you what, uh, let's take this boat out into the deeper water and throw out the nets for a catch. Peter, thinking he knows more than Jesus, says, We fished all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I'm going to humble myself and just, let's go do it. So they do it, and of course, what happens? They had fished all night and caught nothing, but then they throw out their nets, and there's so much fish, they can't hardly bring them in. Their buddies have to come haul it in. And look at verse 8. Look at the response. That was verse 5. Luke chapter 8. Sorry, I was right. Luke chapter 5, verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw the miraculous catch of fish, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He went from thinking that he knew more than Jesus to having his eyes open just a little bit as to who Jesus is. He's still going to be in the process of learning a whole lot more about who Jesus was over the years. But just that little bit of understanding that he's something I'm not, he says, I'm sinful. Go to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, look at verses 17 and 18. This is the same John who had leaned against Jesus' breast at the Lord's Supper, the same John who had seen him transfigured, the same John who had walked with him, the same John who had been there when he had healed Jairus' daughter, the same John that had been taken further in the garden when he goes to pray right before the cross. I could list on and on and on all the things that John had seen with Jesus, all the experiences he had, the fact that he just called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, Yet when he has on the Isle of Patmos another experience with Jesus, where he sees Jesus again in His full glory, not just it shining through His flesh, but His full glory, look at verse 17, When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. But He laid His right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. The same John, when he understood even more the holiness of God, He was so afraid, he fell down in fear. Go to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1. Look at verses 26 through 28. It says, And above the expanse over their heads, There was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that was in the cloud on the day of rain, So so was the appearance of the brightness all around him. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. When Ezekiel in his call sees God, what happens again? His attitude is repentance and humility. Now, I'm going to go somewhere here that I want you to stick with me. I don't want you to think for a second that we need to think that we're horrible sinners. Because by God's grace, we have been declared righteous if we are in Christ. The whole term of justification means it's a, it's a legal declaration. We've talked before about how God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. I don't want you, as, as I go into where I think God wants me to go tonight, I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, if you've been sealed by his spirit, you have been declared righteous. The righteousness of Christ has already been imputed to you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do anything to be more righteous. You are righteous. Yet, if we're faithful to the scriptures, the Bible also continues to show us that even though we've been declared righteous, even though we've been justified, and one day we will be glorified, there is one other process still in the works, isn't there? It's the sanctification process. And God is still in the process of purifying us, even though we've been declared righteous, and even though we're guaranteed eternity, He's still in the process of conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. And in order for that process to be accomplished, we as believers need to keep this same attitude that says, I'm not where God wants me to be yet. And then when God uses his judgment on the world and the nations, that same fire will be used to purify us. Those same trials that come upon the world are going to be used to purify us. Now, thank God, as you've heard me teach before, we're going to be spared the final, final part. But that doesn't mean we won't be going through stuff between now and then. So go to James chapter 4. Exactly. <laughs> and that fire is a purifying. And James chapter 4, is God writing through James to the church or unbelievers? He's writing to the church, it's very clear. So in James chapter 4, look at the verses one through 10. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, Christians? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and then you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the Scripture says that he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Clearly talking to Christians. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What's really there that still needs to be removed in this process of sanctification? Even when we've been declared righteous, we're still in that process of being sanctified and purified. What does God use to bring that out? Trials. Again, remember the people in the city of Jerusalem that were grieved over the sin were marked with a seal and protected the destruction that was coming, but the fire still hit them. They lost their land. They lost their houses. They lost their livelihoods. They lost all that stuff. Yet in the process, as they humbled themselves, he purified them and he did his work through that. And I want you to hear this as believers in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church, because that's what the Bible teaches. Don't fall into thinking that means that we're going to miss out on all the stuff that's to come on the earth. No, folks, it's going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. But if you understand that God is for you and all his purposes for you are good, even when you go through trials in this life, the fire will either bring destruction for the unbeliever or purification for the believer. And if you don't like it, like we looked at last week, we don't like buttermilk and we don't like lard. If you don't like it, understand the purpose is still good. Its purpose is still good. The difference will be How will you respond to it? How will you respond to it? Now, as we've seen, a a true view of God's holiness and our lack thereof is necessary for salvation and also of close fellowship with the Lord. You see, God uses the same things He's using, like I said, to judge the world to produce more righteousness in us. It's called pruning. Go to John 15. Let me share with you some verses that we know are there, we just don't like them. John chapter 15, look at verses 1 through 17. Jesus speaking to his disciples there in the garden right before he went to the cross. He said, I'm the true vine. and My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away or picks up. And every branch that it does bear, bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you what? Bear much fruit. Here we see it again. That's, that's the third time we've now seen it. And so proved to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I love loved you. Greater than love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go, and there it is again, bear fruit, and that your fruit should, be, should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Those of you that are gardeners out here, anybody? Show hands. Gardeners, you like working with garden. What's the purpose of pruning? Why do you prune? And what is pruning, by the way, for those in the room that don't know? You cut it back. I mean, the bush starts to look really good. But if you want more flowers or more fruit, you have to actually do something that makes no sense at all. You actually have to cut it way back. But in doing so, painful as it may be for the bush, it produces more fruit. We have an orange tree. Well, we did until Matthew, but we had an orange tree in our backyard. And every year, even though our orange tree, some Christmases would produce 250 oranges. It was amazing. Just one little tree that I bought for my wife years ago and the, put it in the trunk of my car and brought it and said, Hey, Happy Mother's Day or whatever it was, or I'm a great husband. Whatever my reason was for giving her this, we planted it in the backyard. We don't know a whole lot about, about gardening and stuff, but we thought we'd give it a try. And you know what? The Lord blessed and that tree got so big that you couldn't even get to the top of it with a ladder. And one tree would produce 250 oranges. But that was because I had done some reading and found out that every year, even though it looked real pretty, I had to take the hacksaw to it and prune it. But it would come back thicker and fuller every year. And God's desire is that we produce fruit so that we show that we're His disciples. And don't be surprised when you go through stuff that hurts. Don't be surprised, we try to live our lives where there's no trouble and no pain. We try in our churches to set up our paperwork so that there will no be any problems. You don't really know what it means to walk with God if you think you're gonna have a life with no trouble because the same Jesus said in this life you will have trouble. Oh, but I just would like a few days God with no trouble. No, careful. Each day has enough trouble of its own. For you King James people, you say, what's he talking about? Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Go with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. I'll show you another passage. We know this is there, but we don't like it. Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verses 1 through 11. He just listed the Hall of Fame of Faith, what we like to call it, men and women of faith and all the stuff they went through. Some received their children back from the dead. Others escaped the sword. Some were killed by the sword and some were sawn in two. Some wandered in deserts and caves. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. I'm so glad he's finishing it, not me who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You haven't even yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, you're, you guys are complaining about being mistreated because of your faith. You haven't even bled yet. How would you like if your preacher said that to you? And you've forgotten the word ex- exhortation or encouragement, some of your translations say, that addresses you as sons. My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, I spank my own kids. I don't spank yours. I've thought about it a couple of times, but I just—it's—I'm supposed to discipline my own children. If you're not being disciplined by God, you're not His. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The biscuits. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Some of you listening right now are saying, what's he talking about with the biscuits? You have to go back to last week. 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 19. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. By the way, put that in your own words. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. What's Peter saying? Think like Christ. Expect to what? Suffer in the flesh. If Christ suffered in the flesh, expect to suffer in the flesh. Of course, there are plenty of churches that will tell you you don't have to. You can go to them, they're full. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they'll give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God provides, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because of the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words... Don't sin and then say, well, I'm just suffering because, no, no, if you, you're the one cause for it, he's saying, don't do it that way. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, for it is time, listen, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if, if the righteous will scarcely be saved, What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Folks, I don't know why specifically. I don't know what specifically is going to happen. But as I was praying through our study for tonight and throughout this whole book, as I've been kind of marking out where I think God wants us to go, one thing I just feel like he's wanting me to do is to prepare you for the fact that in this world, even though the guy you wanted to win possibly won the election, I want to have you hear me that that doesn't mean that the judgment of God isn't still coming on this nation because of its sin. And if that happens, I cannot promise you that every one of us will go unscathed. But you'll be fine. If your attitude is, he's God, And I'm not, and he gets to do with me however he wishes. And if you have that attitude, the Bible says that that same fire, that same judgment he brings on the nation will at the same time be used to purify you, and you will come out with great reward. The difference is the attitude of your heart. By the way, that was just all from the coals of fire. Let's not forget that the whole world is about to receive In God's timing, a judgment. All those who reject Christ. I'm not going to take the time to uh, go there. Actually, I will. Go to Hebrews 12. You're already already there in 1 Peter. Back up to Hebrews 12. Look at verses 25 through 29. Let us not lose fact, though, that this same fire that he's going to use to purify us, he is using as a judgment on the whole world, and it is coming. Hebrews 12, verses 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. At that time His voice shook the earth, but now He has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Go back to Peter, this time go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 1, Peter says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, and both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water and by the word of God, and that by means of these... The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should repentance. I think we heard earlier He desires to give mercy. He's not wanting anyone to perish, but He's patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I don't think we can, any of us, even fathom the kind of destruction that's going to come that will not only remove the earth, but also will destroy the heavens. I mean, if it's hot enough to melt, the, the heavenly bodies that are so many millions of miles away. It's going to be hot here. You know what's cool? The Bible, as we saw tonight, said this. That God, when he spoke the first time at Mount, on Mount Sinai there, the earth shook. This time he's going to shake the earth and the heavens. And only what is going to be left is what can't be shaken. Don't miss that. It's kind of like when you have a cloth or a carpet or a welcome mat and you want to get all the junk out of it. You shake it really good so that all the stuff that isn't supposed to be there falls away. The Bible says in the last judgment, God's going to shake the earth and the heavens in such a way that all that doesn't belong is going to fall away. And what will be left? I hope you know the answer. Us, the righteous, those who are in Christ, we we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The one who's doing the shaking, we're in him. It's going to be an amazing thing. The science of it makes my head hurt. But I believe it to be really true. You don't need to recycle (laughs) it? Don't get me started. Go to Ezekiel chapter 11. Go to Ezekiel chapter 11. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 13. We'll begin our breakdown of this. We won't finish it tonight, but there's something in here that I want to kind of pull out for our time that we have left in the 15 minutes that we have left. Ezekiel chapter 11, look at verses 1 through 13. He goes on, he says, The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway there were twenty-five men, and I saw them among them Jazaniah, the son of Azur. That's not the same Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, that we saw earlier. It's a different Jazaniah. And Pelatiah, the son of Beniah. By the way, keep Pelatiah's name in your mind. You're going to see something interesting. And Pelatiah, the son of Beniah, princes of the people. In other words, they were the leaders in Jerusalem. These aren't the 25 men that we saw earlier bowing down to the sun in the temple. These are 25 different men. And they're in the gate way, the, you know, one of the, the gates of the city, and usually in the gates of the city is where the elders and the leaders of the city would sit, and they would kind of rule from there. These are 25 men who are princes or rulers in Israel. He lists a couple of them, Jezaniah and Pelatiah, and he said to me, son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in this city, who say the time is not near to build houses. The, this city is the cauldron, and we are the meat. Therefore I prophesy against them, prophesy, O son of man. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say, thus says the Lord, so you think, O house of Israel. For I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in this city, and have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of the city, they are the meat, and this city is the cauldron, but you shall be brought brought out of the midst of it. You have feared have feared the sword and will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God, and I will bring you out of the midst of it and give you into the hands of foreigners and execute judgments upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat inside of it or in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. And it came to pass while I was prophesying that Pelatiah, we saw him earlier, the son of Beniah, died. While, right while he was preaching. Then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, "Ah, oh Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? Now, folks, this section that I just read to you, some of you, if you've tried to follow along, have said... This is confusing. And what does it mean, where the meat and the cities, the cauldron and all this stuff? It's actually one of the hardest to translate passages in the Bible. And if you do a study of this, you'll actually find that a lot of the Bibles actually translate the section that I just read to you in different ways. If you've been following along with the King James, you'll notice that here when it says in verse three that those false leaders are saying Here in the ESV, it says the time is not near to build houses. The King James actually acts like it is time to build houses, right? It reads like it is time to build houses. Here the ESV translates it as it's not time to build houses. Actually, the New King James clarifies it and translates it like the ESV, that it's not time to build houses. Actually, um, these... Plus, why would the false leaders, the bad leaders of Jerusalem, who've been saying all along, yeah, you prophets that are saying that Babylon's going to come and take us captive. No, they're not. We're fine. You would think that they would be saying, now is the time to build houses. We're fine. Why would they be saying now's not the time to build houses? You would think that that's what the prophets would be saying. And what in the world are they talking about when they said the city is the cauldron and we're the meat? That doesn't, what does that even mean? Well, we're going to take some time to show you what it means. But I want you to, first off, the, understand the Hebrew in this passage is very clear. And the fact that the Hebrew is so clear has made it really hard for translators and Bible commentators. Here's why. Because in their mind, they would be thinking that these false teachers would be saying, man, it's all right, go ahead and build houses. We're going to be fine. But they're saying it's not time to build houses. And what does it mean, where the, the cities, the cauldron, were were the meat? Well, the NIV translates it, will it not be soon time to build, which is not good translation. Like I said, the KJV says it's not near, let us build. The New King James correctly translated into this time, sorry, the time is not near to build houses. And I'm going to ask you again, why would the bad leaders be encouraging not to build? Here's the reason. Because the people here that Ezekiel is prophesying to are not responding to something Ezekiel has said. They're responding to something Jeremiah has already said. Remember, I told you, in order to study Ezekiel, we have to study the book of Jeremiah and some of Isaiah at the same time. Because these same three prophets have been used to God overlapping to speak to the nation of Israel at this exact time. And Jeremiah said something to them back in Jeremiah 29. Go back to Jeremiah 29. And look at verses 1 through 10. And when you understand what Jeremiah said to them, and that their response is to Jeremiah's prophecy, all of a sudden this whole passage unlocks. In Jeremiah chapter 29, look at verses 1 through 10. It says, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah king of Judah sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Here's what the letter said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it's a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I'll fulfill my promise to you, my promise and bring you back to this place. So remember, some of the elders and the leaders of Jerusalem had been taken captive to Babylon. Ezekiel's one of these people. And Jeremiah sends a message to them that, of course, the leaders that are left in Jerusalem knew about. And his message was, you're going to be in captivity for a long time. This attack by Nebuchadnezzar is going to be successful. And ultimately, you're all going to be taken captive, the ones that survive. And so you're also going to be there for a... Long time, so build houses, plant gardens, let your kids marry. You're going to spend most of the rest of your life in captivity. The leaders of Jerusalem said, now is not the time to build houses. We're not going to be there long. The people that are there aren't going to be there very long. They were actually refuting something Jeremiah had said. So even though some Bible translators tried to say, well, they're saying it is time no, they're saying, literally, it's not time to build houses, but they're responding to what Jeremiah said because he says, "Go ahead and build." And then the whole cryptic thing where he says, "Well, the city's the cauldron and we're the meat." In other words, they said was, "You know what, We know Nebuchadnezzar's outside the walls, and he's coming to attack us. We know that. But the city's going to protect us. The fire's going to hit the walls of the city. the city's the cauldron. We're the meat. In other words, we're inside the pot. It might get a little warm, but the fire won't touch us because the fire is going to stay outside the pot. You understand? And if you go back to Ezekiel, you find all of a sudden the whole passage becomes really clear because God's response. Remember, this is what the leaders in Jerusalem are saying. Now's not the time to build in exile. Because you're not going to be there long, guys, because this ain't going to this is going to be brief, this little attack by Nebuchadnezzar. And don't listen to Jeremiah. He, he's wrong that you're going to be there 70 years plus. So now's not the time to build, even though Jeremiah said God said, go ahead and build. You're going to be there a while. And not only that, the city's the cauldron and we're the meat. The fire may make, hit the outside of the city, but it ain't going to touch us. We're protected from the fire. Might get a little uncomfortable, but we ain't going to be touched by the fire. Look at verse five in the spirit. Of the Lord fell upon me, Ezekiel said. And he said to me, Say, thus says the Lord, I love this, so you think. (laughs) Isn't that neat? So you think, O house of Israel. For I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in the city and have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have lain in the midst of the city, they're the meat. In the city is the cauldron. In other words, all the people you've killed in your wickedness, they're the ones who are going to be protected. Do You see it? They're the ones who are going to be protected from, from, from the, the, what's coming on from the outside. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the slain who have laid in the midst of the city, they're the meat in the city is the cauldron. But you shall be brought out of the midst of it. You who, have, who have, fear, have feared the sword and I'll bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God. And I will bring you out of the midst of it. And give you into the hands of foreigners and execute judgments upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in it, or or meat in the midst of it. I'm gonna judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes nor obeyed my rules. In other words, God says, You think you're gonna be protected in the city? Let me tell you. The people that you've been killing in your wickedness, they are the ones that are gonna be protected from it, because I'm gonna take you out of the cauldron and I'm gonna kill you outside the city. Go to 2 Kings 25 and tell me who was right. 2 Kings 25, look at verses 18 through 21. Second Kings chapter 25, verse 18. We already saw early in our study tonight in the first part of chapter 25. How Nebuchadnezzar seized the city and they destroyed him and they burned the city. In verse 18, And the captain of the guard took Sariah the chief priest, and Zephaniah the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war, and five men of the king's council who were found in the city, and the secretary the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the city, and Nebuchadnezzar Dan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the hand, land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of his land. If you remember earlier, we already had seen that King Zedekiah had been taken outside the city with his sons and everybody. And his sons were put to death right in front of him. And then they poked out his eyes. So that'd be the last thing he saw and the last thing he remembers. And then he was taken into captivity. They were saying... Don't listen to Jeremiah, you guys that are in exile. Now's not the time to build houses. Even though Jeremiah had said, go ahead and build houses, now's not the time to build. Where are the meat in the city's the cauldron? Yeah, there's a fire outside the pot, and it might make things a little uncomfortable inside the city for a while, but the fire will never touch the meat. And God says, so you think. Actually, I'm going to take you outside the city and put you to death. And does anybody remember how God proved that what he was saying was true, besides the fact that it happened here in 2 Kings 22? What happened as Ezekiel was saying this? Pelatiah, one of the guys who was saying, We're fine. As long as we stay inside this city, we won't be touched. What happens to him right there? God struck him dead. In other words, you think you're safe? Now, as we close tonight, go back to Ezekiel chapter 11. And I'm going to just do this real quick. Look at the response of Ezekiel in verse 13. And it came to pass while I was prophesying that Pelatiah the son of Benaiah died. And then I danced and said, "Told you so, told you so, told you so. <laughs> nanny nanny boo boo. I win, you lose. I'm right, you're wrong." Was that his attitude? Then I fell down on my face and I cried out with a loud voice and said, Oh, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? Folks, I don't want you to miss this. Was Pelatiah deserving of judgment? Yes. He never repented. And there came a point where what would have been used to purify Pelatiah to bring him into the righteousness of God, became the judgment on Pelatiah. But what is the heart of God? He does not desire th- that. He, he doesn't desire any to perish. Actually, you're quoting from Ezekiel. Did you know that? Go to Ezekiel chapter 18. I'm going to read to you two verses and we'll close with these two verses. Ezekiel 18, verse 23 and verse 32. God says this, Ezekiel 18, 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Verse 32. God again speaking, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. The heart of the preacher was a continual one that says, this is coming. Don't have it happen to you. Preachers who rejoice at the destruction of the wicked do not have the heart of God. God does not rejoice when the wicked get theirs. God is grieved when it happens. He's holy, and he has to do it. And so each of us who have been spared the judgment, whom God's still using the same thing he's using to judge the nations and judge the United States, the same things he's using on them, are going to hit us. They will affect us. But if our attitude is proper, it'll be used for purification and growth. But we should never start thinking, he loves us and hates you. Because that's not the heart of God. And with that said, I love you, and I'll see you next week.